Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 through 20, which Robbie read earlier, you know, um, it's normal for us to be in a book of the Bible for long periods of time here, really long periods of time, for long stretches of time, and unbroken. But we're in kind of a pattern right now where we've got several standalone sermons. Last week's sermon, the Christmas sermons, and last week's vision sermon, and this week, uh, the quarterly kind of uh, sermon that the elders want to do on the heart. What, what does it look like to have a heart of giving? And then <clears throat> next week we'll have a, a, a sermon on um, the, the beauty of the gospel as it relates to relationships across racial boundaries. What our world recognizes as divides. And we're going to see hopefully next week that there's no such thing. And uh, and so uh, we'll, we'll do that next week. And then the following week, um, Sanctity of Life Sunday, which is very special to us here. We'll do a, a sermon on that and then be back in Ephesians. So we're, we're getting there uh, this kind of the month of standalone sermons. But Philippians chapter 4 is where we are to speak about giving. And that might seem a little bit strange, although it's obvious he's talking about giving here. Um, that a pastor, we were actually riding by a church um, yesterday, Amy and I were, and uh, the kids, and they had a billboard about January the 30th being their sermon on giving. And uh, and just from what was on the board, it's obvious he's not preaching from Philippians chapter 4 about giving, which is his choice. Uh, I don't preach on it every time out of Philippians 4, so I don't want you to get the wrong idea. But the attitude of the board was a guilt message. Which is what the church often sins about giving. is guilting people into giving more. And I want to just tell you up front, you can relax. That's not at all what this is about today. So everybody take a deep breath, breathe out, uh, and, and, and realize, hey, we're not about to get punched here. Because really this is a celebration of what God is doing in and through you. You know, this past year, we just closed the budget year we run here January to December. On a calendar year, our budget for 2010, projected budget, we project budgets here, was $291,900. And as of last week, when we when we closed the books, uh, this church had taken in, in general giving, $315,838.51, to be exact. That's 23000 $938.51 over projected giving in the worst economic year for our nation since the Great Depression. So this is not about you people haven't done a good job and you need to doggone get with it and give more. This is a this is a thank you from your pastor to say, I'm so thankful to serve along with you. You, you, you are showing the light of Christ in the fact that many of you have had the hold of economics broken on your life. Many of you. Some of you still struggling with that. And that's a big struggle. I want to encourage you. It's a struggle for every Christian of every age. Okay? So you're not alone. So you're still struggling. And you hear that number and you think, I wasn't a real big part of that. Hey, God's grace is sufficient. And He can break that hold on your life. He is powerful. And He can do it, okay? And so, this that's kind of the flavor of the sermon that's coming. That's not including 
the over $20,000 taken up for Dave Swinney and his family as they go through cancer and the trial of cancer and treatments. That's not including the over $3,000 that was taken up for the Micah's Hope Fund this year to support uh, adoptions. That's not counting the Haiti offering, which was taken up last year. Um, that's not counting the cerebral palsy giving. That's not counting all of those things. And I don't want to put a number on it because I don't have it, but you can imagine. It's much higher in actual giving. And it came from you. And it was un... Uh, we didn't have to beat you to get it. We presented needs and you gave from the goodness of the grace of God that exists in you. And so that's that's really where we're going here. The title of the sermon is Let Our Giving... Let our giving at Grace Fellowship flow out of our contentment. That's my desire for us, that our giving would come out of a heart of contentment. Because I believe that's the biblical mandate. I think, I think that's one thing that we see in the Bible that's so different from everything else in the world. And that is, God's people are content to have Christ. And therefore, any possession they have can be traded in for the good of Christ's body at any moment. Because that's not where they get their contentment. That's not where they feel fulfilled is in their things, but in the person of Christ. And so the more at peace and at contentment we are in our inner man, the more we will give. It's just a natural byproduct of contentment. The background here in Philippians, since we're not in a full study of Philippians, one day maybe we'll have that, is this. It's been about a decade since Paul's been with this church in Philippi. They, they've, they've, they love Paul and Paul loves them, but it's been a long time since they've seen him in the flesh. And in that time, they have supported his ministry as he went on to Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth. They continued to give to him, even though he wasn't there with them locally. And since then, a great famine has arisen in the area of Macedonia, particularly hard on the people of Philippi. This is the poorest of the churches of Macedonia that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that were giving out of their poorness. This is the poorest one. And so that's who these people are. And things have changed for Paul also. Paul is, as he writes this letter, shackled between guards a prisoner of the Roman Caesar himself, Nero, one of the most vicious and brutal leaders of the Roman Empire, who hated Christianity and tortured and murdered them by the thousands as a recreation almost. He now is a prisoner of that emperor awaiting either the lines or the sword, whatever Nero's desire was for that day. He knew this. He had been told this. It had been prophesied to him that he was going to die. Now he's shackled among guards in an apartment on the outskirts of Rome waiting for Caesar to get the, to him in the docket on the trials. And he begins to write a letter to the church at Philippi in response to the gifts they sent to him. So don't hear this letter coming from Paul sitting in a Rolls Royce living in a mansion somewhere in off the uh, coast of the Mediterranean, sipping coffee. Every word you read here is from a man who's living at the very bottom. He's at the very bottom. Our culture, in contrast to his, is a culture of comfort, not contentment. Wouldn't you agree with that? 
We're, we're, we're a people of comfort. Statistics tell us, and I've shared this with you before, that over the last decade, which prior to 2007 was the wealthiest decade in our history, Christians, evangelical Christians, reported giving $629 per family per year to the church. Far cry from contentment. It's all about comfort for us. How can this be? Well, because our Western culture tells us that a constant drumbeat of materialism is thrown at us every day, isn't it? It's at me. It's at you. We're all in the same boat. Whatever you've got, it's not enough. Not only is it not enough for today, but it's certainly not enough in your 401k. Because 40 years from now, you're going to retire. I'm not going to get on the retirement, okay? I, I know. I know. I'm young. It is a little presumptuous, though, the way our culture talks about 40 years from now, as if it's tomorrow and we're going to make it. And yet our culture is just hammering it in 18-year-olds. Boy, if you don't lay up for when you're 70, you're in trouble. And, and so large chunks of our wealth are being put away for the future. Large chunks are being spent on toys for today. Large chunks are being spent on what we call needs that are actually wants in my life and in your life. And it comes from a culture of comfort, not contentment, not contentment. And so that's kind of a contrast. That's kind of where we are as we see Paul there in the prison, in a Roman prison, imprisoned by the Romans, waiting on Nero. And he's talking about how he has everything he needs. And we're here in the West, and we don't have what we need. And we always need more. And so I want to talk to us about that, that, that giving really does flow out of the heart that Paul presents to us here. And it might be a little strange to look at a man's life, because I find this very biographical, and then talk to us, but we're going to give it a shot, okay? So the first thing I want us to see from this passage in verse 10 is that we will be content... When we truly trust the providence of God. Look what he says in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, about 10 years, you've received your, you've revived, excuse me, your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Read no opportunity. Second Corinthians 8. They were too poor to give anything. They barely put bread in their children's mouths. So they had no opportunity to give to Paul. That's how poor they were. And so now he's saying, now you, you've been revived in giving because now you have an opportunity. And in this, I see a, a great trust in God's providence. Do you see it? I rejoiced in the Lord that at all this length now you revived your giving. You revived your concern for me. I mean, Paul wasn't mad at God because it had been a long stretch of him going without because the Philippians didn't have enough to give. Paul wasn't mad at God. Paul was rejoicing now that God had seen fit to give the Philippians excess, any little excess that would then take care of his needs. You know, in a Roman prison, unlike our day, you weren't promised three square meals and a cot. You were dependent on friends and family to give you bread to eat. If not, you'd starve. 
And so now, here Paul is, he's, he's not embittered at God because it's been a hard stretch. He's thankful for God's providence. God put us in the position we were in before, church at Philippi, and now he's put us in this position. Let's rejoice with God. Let's rejoice in God's goodness and his providence toward me. That word revived, as you look at it, is a real, is an agricultural term. It's as if he said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now at length that you have flowered, you have bloomed again with your concern for me. It's, it's, it's the picture of a fig tree that at one point gave out a lot of figs and then went through a dry spell where it gave no figs. And now the spring is coming. The flowers are back on bloom. And fruit is being born again in the life of the church at Philippi. And he's thankful for that fruit. And we're going to see him return to this idea of fruitfulness later in the passage. So that's why I bring it to your attention. The word revived is an agricultural term. It means now again you're blooming. You're bearing fruit in this area of your life. You're concerned for me. Not that you weren't before, but now God has blessed you in His providence and you have leftovers. And what did they do with their leftovers, church? This is a, this is a, this is a, this side point. But look what they did with their leftovers. This is a people that are living through a time of famine. Real famine. I know all of us are on white alert around here. Right? Go to Walmart in the last three days. You might see, you might get your hand bit off if you're reaching for the last loaf of bread. We, we, all of us, I know some of you like to act tough, but trust me, Tuesday, if your power's out and you can't get on the road and you didn't go to Walmart, you're going to be sitting there panicked. How long is this going to last? Oh, goodness, I hope we get power back. I'm going to starve. These people were living in a continual state of barely staying alive. And they got a little bit left over. And what do they do with it? They don't stick it in a mason jar and bury it. They send it with Epaphroditus. Go give this to Paul. Providence of God is trusted by the Philippians and by Paul. When we trust his providence, we will give this way. This is how I will give. This is how you will give from a heart of contentment. They trusted God. They knew God was providing for them. They had a sure and steady resolve. Our God is good. His providence is perfect. That was kind of their theme, you might say. And so, as we look at this passage, we're convicted, I know I am, to say, man, they're blooming again in the, in the spring of their giving, and it's coming out of famine. It's coming out of famine. When we are content... We will, it, we will be content when we begin to trust in the good providence of God. God works in the world in two ways, we know, by the Bible. Miracles, and they still happen every day. That is defined by saying God steps into the natural, what we call natural realm and order, and does something that really violates those laws. He violates his own rules. He set the rules up, he can violate them. Like making water stand on its edge at the Red Sea. Would we all agree that breaks the rules? That's not supposed to happen. Like making bread come down out of heaven like rain. That, that just doesn't happen every day. Like having ravens pick up food and take it to a prophet in the desert who needs something to eat. Like going to a woman who's about to starve to death with her one child and then I'm, I don't, all I have is just a little bit left. And he said, well, give it to me and then you'll never run dry. 
That's a miracle. Like walking by people and saying, hey, you're lame, stand up and walk, your sins are forgiven. This is a miracle. But how God works also in the world, and we disregard it. I disregard it, you disregard it, but it's what made Paul so content in whatever circumstance he found himself. It's through providence. That is God's good judgment and rule over all things. All things. That's how Romans 8:28 can be true. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. How do we know that? Because God's good providence rules over the whole world. And that's what these people trusted. That's what Paul trusted. That's what you and I need to trust even more as we move forward is in the good providence of our good God. Secondly, in this passage, we see that we will be content when we truly desire Christ and Him alone. I know we say we desire Christ and Him alone, but when I really start desiring Him and Him alone, then I will be content. No man has desired Christ and been turned away. No man has... Come to Christ, hands open, begging and pleading for more of Him. And Christ said, no thank you. If my desire, if my hands are open and raised up saying, Oh God, give me more of you. That will never be denied. So if that's my contentment, if that's where I find my contentment is in Him and Him alone, then I will have a spirit of contentment. Because He will never deny the request. He will always answer with yes. He taught us to pray. And when he got done, he said, ask for the Holy Spirit and he shall be given to you. Have you ever thought about that? In our prayer life, is that what we're asking for? God, give me more of your spirit. God, give me more of you. Well, that's where contentment really rises from. Look in verses 11 through 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. He wants to correct what could have easily become their thought process. Oh, they're poor Paul, poor pitiful Paul starving to death in the prison. And if it hadn't been for us throwing the Hail Mary and giving him some of our stuff, he would have been in dear trouble. No, he says, look, I'm not talking to you out of need. I'm not telling you that I was starving. For I've learned... Here, this, this is it. This is trusting in God and God alone and His providence and finding contentment in Christ alone. I've learned in whatever situation I find myself to be content. Now, the word used here and translated for us content is not the identical word to other places. Like in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, when Paul says, I've learned to be content in suffering. In brokenheartedness, in exposure, in weakness, for I find that when I'm weak, he is strong. He says, I, that's a certain kind, certain word of contentment, same idea, it's just being expressed a little different here to the Philippian church. This word, here in, in this letter, is only used here, nowhere else in the New Testament do we find this word. And what it means is that the source of one's sustenance, one's life, doesn't is not dependent on anyone in the world. No circumstance. Basically, that's what it means. It's used for kings in the ancient world who owned the whole kingdom. Therefore, they didn't need to ask anybody for anything. And be careful that you don't misunderstand. 
Because if you take that the wrong way, you would think, well, Paul's content because he thinks he's good enough. But what's inside of Paul? Christ. And so what we really see Paul saying is, I've learned that Christ is enough. Him in me is all I need. And so whatever my outward circumstance is, is not what what makes me content. What makes me content is what is inside of me that no man can give to me. You see that? That's very different from me and you, isn't it? That's very different, I'm afraid, from our culture and even our church culture. I know, he says, how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. He's been at both places. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing hunger and facing plenty in facing abundance and facing need. What's the secret? Christ is enough. To make it simple, everything without Christ equals nothing. And nothing with Christ equals everything. That's the secret of contentment. It's not mystical. It's not some higher religion. It's that simple. Nothing with Christ is all I need. And so if I abound, that's okay. I'm not going to reject God's goodness towards me. I'll take it. And if I'm poor and starving, that's okay. God is good. He will send me what I need. That's the secret. We will be content when we trust God's providence and when Christ alone is sufficient. When He's enough. When He's all we really need and want and desire. I was in... It's funny, I was, was, Andrew several months ago told me about this documentary called Born Rich. And, uh, and I didn't watch it. And then I was getting ready for this sermon and that title came to my mind. And so it's about an hour long. I flipped, some of you may have watched it before. I flip it on and watch it. And there are several stories being told by one, the heir of Johnson and Johnson. He's breaking all the rules. He's talking about rich people and their money, which is not something you're supposed to do. He's interviewing the insanely rich, as the documentary says. The lives of these insanely rich. I mean, how much money you got to be to be insanely rich? Right? I never will forget S.I. Newhouse IV, the heir to one of the largest publishing companies ever in the West. He's sitting there, young man, in his early 20s. He said, my family's worth about $70 billion. Total assets. All the family. I followed that up with, basically, it's not enough. Now, I'm not slamming him or his character. I'm simply saying, everything without Christ Equals nothing. It won't ever be enough. If your source of contentment is money, it will never be enough. 
The more you get, the more you want. The more you have, the more you want to steal. The more you want to take, the more you want to keep, the more afraid you are someone's going to take it from you. When that's your contentment, it's never enough. If women, men, if women, if your wife, if women are your contentment, if you're content when you have what you want from your wife and you're discontent when you don't have it, they will never be enough. Your marriage will end in shambles. Because they can't satisfy what you need. You don't have the secret. Nothing with Christ is everything. If you make climbing up the corporate ladder what makes you content, I don't care if you are the CEO of the greatest company in the world. It won't be enough. God has designed us in such a way that nothing feels that longing, that hurting except Christ. That's why every person on that documentary, everyone, no exceptions, you go watch it and tell me what you think. You look in their eyes, they are void. They are empty. They are hurting. All of them, no exceptions, have turned to women and drugs and fast lifestyles and and everything they can trying to satisfy their hunger. It's not enough. Because they don't know the secret. They don't trust God's providence, and Christ alone is not enough for them. And so, that's all fine for them and for Paul, but where are we? Because you don't have the money these people have. But you can be suffering from the same disease if you're the poorest in this congregation. Where does contentment come from? From a perfect marriage? From a big bank account? Where does it come from for you? Third, in this passage, we will be thankful when we are truly content. (laughs) Thankfulness is a byproduct of contentment. If you look at verse 13, he ends the paragraph that we've been talking about with an abused Bible verse. How many athletes have said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Guess what? If he weighs 325 and he's stronger than you are, he's going to whip you most all the time. I don't care if you paint the Bible verse all over your face. It doesn't matter. That's not what the verse is about. The verse is not about life achievements. The verse is about contentment. What I can do is I can suffer in poverty. Or I can be very rich. I can do anything that Christ strengthens me to do in this regard. It doesn't mean that if you're a 70 IQ, you're going to be a rocket scientist. Sorry. It just doesn't. It's not a promise to all your dreams. It is a statement, a fact, that when you find your contentment in Christ, He will strengthen you and you can do anything, suffer through any circumstance, live in any status of life with ease because of His strength which is in you. And then that comes right into an attitude of thankfulness. Yet it was kind of you. 
I'm not in need, but it was kind of you to share in my trouble, to have a concern for my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, them giving and Paul receiving money, them receiving encouragement and instruction from the scriptures as Paul gave it. That's the ministry that was going on, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, which, by the way, was a much more affluent congregation, but yet you, Philippi, sent me help for my needs once and again. We will be thankful when we are truly content. He's not bashing the Philippians. He's not fussing at them for sending him money because he doesn't need any money. What he's saying is, I thank you for having concern for the things that I'm facing in my life. And, more importantly, concern for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it go forward. And so thank you. His graciousness comes from contentment. Good example of this. Watch children open presents. When they get the wrapping off and they're looking at the present, isn't it classic? You can read their face, can't you? Mama buys them socks for Christmas. Mm-mm. Oh, thanks. What's that big box over there? And we kind of snicker at kids, but we do the same thing, don't we? God gives us what we need. We say, oh, yeah, thanks. What's in that big box over there? I want that box. Never thankful. God gives us hamburger. We want filet mignon. God gives us filet mignon. We want cows to make our own filet mignon. And servants to get it ready for us. If God gave us that, we want more. We would want more. We would want more. Thankfulness cannot come from a person who is not content with what they have. An attitude of graciousness is what will be the byproduct of the providence of God being trusted, Christ alone being enough, and now we're thankful. Whatever we have, we're thankful. I never will forget that one of my heroes, and I, he's, one, he's a living hero, you know, he's, he's sitting down to eat, and he's praying. And in his devotional book, he wrote the prayer. And I'm reading the prayer. I think, man, this must be a humdinger of a meal. And it was a bowl of rice, porridge. And his thankfulness for this rice porridge. And I'm thinking, man, I'm upset if the meat is not medium rare. Or medium, or whatever, you know? He was so thankful just for this meal that God had given. So many of us at the job we're at right now are begging for the next job that's going to fix all our problems. So many of us in the marriage we're in right now are hoping this one comes to an end so we can get in a better one. So many of us are discontent in everything in life. And it shows in ungratefulness. That's where it comes out. Fourth, we'll be focused on others when we're truly content. We will be focused on others. 
Verse 17, not that I seek to get I'm not after your money, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. This is not a backhanded way for him to get things from people. This is an honest truth. It's the same reason why we approach finances here the way we do. We don't beg you for your money. But we thank you for what you're giving. And we ensure you that our God will supply your needs. We believe here, Grace Fellowship, that that's the right way. That's the biblical way to handle church giving. Not begging, but being thankful for what God blesses us with. Not backhandedly complimenting you, but being honest in our compliment, in our thankfulness. Paul says, why can you have that kind of attitude? Because we, like Paul, believe it is to your gain, not to your detriment that you give. There is true giving that leads to godly blessing, God blessing. And you can't get it any other way. And so he saw it as them sowing seed and they would reap a harvest. He was thankful for the harvest that they would reap. That's what you see in this passage. I'm not after your money. I'm seeking what it gives you to be a giver. The credit that goes to you for your giving. I've received full payment and more and am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. Look at what he says about the gift. The gift was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. So when they gave to Paul, it was acceptable to God. That tells us his motive is not for himself, but for their gain. When they gave to him, he said, this has been received and God is going to bless you. God has received it as an offering to him and he will bless you. Paul has nothing he can give back in return. He's in prison. He's waiting to die. But God will settle the account. God accredit this to you. And so his concern was for them, not for himself. And finally, we'll be confident in the goodness of God when we are truly content. If you look at verses 19 through 20, Paul says, And my God might supply every need of yours. And my, my, man, I hope God gives you what you need. Remember the setting. He's not talking to a rich church. He's not talking to affluent people. He's not hedging his bet by saying, well, they got big bank accounts. They're going to have what they need. These people have nothing and whatever excess they had, they gave it to Paul. And yet look what he says. And my God will supply your every need. That is when you're content. You will be confident in the goodness of God. Paul is not hoping God gives them what they need to survive. He knows that they will. That he will. And where does it come from? The riches which he has in glory in Christ Jesus. So, when I say Christ is enough, am I denying the needs of physical people? Your physical people and you have physical needs. Am I denying that? No. I'm saying your physical needs are like 
the crumbs that fall off the table for God. He has given you Christ. So don't sweat the small stuff. I'm, you know, I'm reminded of the story of the man that was going to inherit a great inheritance in England. And, and on his way, he has a flat tire outside of London. He's about a mile outside of London. He gets out of the car and begins to sprint into London. In, in, on the way in, he's stopped by a friend. What are you running for? Don't you have your car? My car's broken down outside of town. Well, man, you need to get that fixed. No, 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 no. I've got an inheritance waiting on me. I'm running down there. I want to get my inheritance. It was such a great inheritance that a flat tire on the way to get it was no big deal. He overlooked it. It was nothing. That's the attitude Paul had. Shackled between Roman guards, waiting to die. He was sprinting to the finish line to receive the inheritance that God had laid up for him in Christ. He wasn't belly aching and complaining about how hard life was. He was thankful that he had life. Whatever life he had was Christ. And when he died, he would have great gain. Where does that come from? From the fact that Christ is enough. That he trusts the providence of God. That material things are like crumbs that fall off the table. They come and go. If I have abundance, great. If I don't, fine. I'm going to inherit the entire world. I think about Romans 4 as we close and in my life. When I begin to grumble and complain, and I do, okay? I'm often reminded that, Carlton, you're grumbling and complaining. All the while, you are an heir to the entire universe. And I'm mad because I only have this inch of a TV and my buddy's got this big inch of TV. And God's saying, I've given you in Christ this whole universe. Why are you complaining? What are you grumbling about? Because I'm not content. Because Christ in that moment is not enough for me. My focus is on material things, which are crumbs that fall off the table. For a great God like we serve. Just to end, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote the book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He's quoted in all the sermons on contentment. This is his definition. Christian contentment is the sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Trust providence. Christ is enough. Thankful. Others focused. Glories in God. That's all in that definition. It's an inward thing. So, you are a gracious church. You are gracious people. And I don't say that to get more from you. But to simply say you are. God has blessed you. And I'm thankful that so many of you 
give beyond what you are physically and humanly possible to give. But we all as a church need to continue to give with open hearts that are grounded in contentment, that are focused on Christ and grounded in contentment. As we move into 2011, I'm challenging us to join together to give recklessly for the cause of Christ. Because I believe that God will continue to supply all of our needs from His glory and through His grace. Let's pray. Father.